Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to a very special edition of The Coffee Clatch. I'm Marianne Russo. Misdiagnosed, misunderstood, and over-medicated. That's how Dr. Temple Grandin and the authors Diane Kennedy and Rebecca Banks describe the common experience for many gifted children with disabilities, mostly ADHD, autism, and many related conditions. Theirs is the only book on twice exceptional children that explains how the diagnostic system traps these uniquely gifted children and causes them to fall through the cracks educationally and socially, I might add. I read many, many books. I have books sent to me all the time, and I will tell you that this is the one that is so comprehensive, groundbreaking, and insightful. It is so long overdue, and I am just thrilled. If you have a bright child labeled and on that journey of misdiagnosis, multiple diagnoses, struggling and being misunderstood, this is the book to read, and this is the interview to listen to. Oh, and we've got to give the title right? of the book. Absolutely. Yeah. The title of the book is Bright, Not Broken, Gifted Kids, ADHD and Autism, Why Twice Exceptional Children Are Stuck and How to Help Them. My guest today, Diane Kennedy, author of the ADHD Autism Connection. She is a longtime advocate, international speaker, trainer, and a mother of three twice exceptional sons. The other co-author is Rebecca Banks. She is not with us on the line now. Hopefully she'll be calling in. She is also the co-author of the ADHD Autism Connection. She is a veteran educator, a speaker, trainer, and a mother of two twice exceptional children. Last but certainly not least, Dr. Temple Grandin is a professor, prolific author, and one of the most accomplished and renowned adults with autism in the world. The HBO biopic, Temple Grandin, was the acclaimed movie of 2010, winning numerous Emmys, Golden Globes, and other awards. She is one of Time Magazine's most influential people, and I am thrilled to have them both. Thank you for joining me. It's great to be here. Great to be here. Thank you so much, Marianne. You know, as I said, this is just an incredible book because so many parents are on this path. I have been on a similar path, and this is going to help a lot of people. So why don't we start off? Um, Rebecca, I'm going to ask you first. Why did you write this book, and who did you write it for? Diane. I'm Diane. That's okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, Rebecca, we're waiting for it. That's okay. That's all right. We could we can both exchange um exchange thoughts. We've we've written so intensely together for so many years. I, I feel at times we are the same person sometimes. Uh we wrote this book because of our own children and our own journey. As you mentioned, our first book, The ADHD Autism Connection, led us to an understanding about the misdiagnosis of ADHD and the misunderstanding of some of the core deficits that are defined in that, um, things like the distractibility, the attention, the behavior issues that we felt weren't being answered. And we came to the term twice exceptional about children who were also gifted, which our children fall into this category. We felt like the systems, the educational system, the diagnostic system are failing our kids and not enough information was out there to help us really understand why. So we continued to look and we felt that the best thing we could do was to help parents like ourselves understand why these kids are stuck, what is happening and what's going wrong. Right. And uh, Dr. Grandin, your involvement in this and your contribution to this is just you know, amazing. Um, how did you get involved in this book? 
Well, Diane uh, Kennedy uh, called me and said that she was working on this book, Bright Not Broken, to address uh, misdiagnosis and problems with gifted kids. I am seeing too many gifted kids that have, you know, various diagnoses. It might be, you know, Asperger's, you know, autism, dyslexia, ADHD, attention deficit, going absolutely nowhere and uh, getting over-medicated, getting all kinds of problems. And the whole diagnosis thing is just an absolute mess. It's not precise. And the problem is, is that the different diagnostic categories don't talk to each other. Like if I go to an autism meeting and then I go to a dyslexia meeting and maybe I go to some other type of meeting, there's almost no overlap between the books. People get, you know, when you go visit the book tables, people get locked into these diagnostic categories. I mean, as soon as a kid gets labeled Asperger's or autism, he's looked at totally differently. Well, I'm a visual thinker, and when I go out and I do a talk at a tech company out in Silicon Valley, I'm just seeing the grown-up versions of the same kind of little geeky, nerdy kids that I see at these meetings. And Or I might go to a meat plant, and the whole maintenance department's probably a little ADHD or on the autism spectrum. You know, those uh, kids went in the right directions. And later on, I want to talk about the misuse of medication. Is a place for careful, conservative use of medication. Way too many kids turned into medication zombies. Yeah, we are going to go into that in depth. Um, You know, I want to just ask, you know, maybe I'll start with you, Diane. What is the connection between ADHD and autism? You know, I think there's a lot of confusion as to how one disorder that is perceived as a difference in hyperfocusing autism um, can be tied to or confused with a disorder that has a difference that's mostly defined by distractibility or lack of focus, ADHD. So can you explain that to parents so that they can understand why there could be a misdiagnosis? Absolutely. I will give it my best. I've been at this for 10 years with that very question, and I I think at times we're all still confused, which is why, and as we will discuss later, the DSM plays a big part in where our thinking comes from on these issues. But the important thing is, as you mentioned, recognizing these symptoms that seem to overlap, but in our finding we have found there's more than an overlap here. There could be a problem of, just basically using, as we have said, we've often used this line, that ADHD is a poor understanding, a poor label for a real set of symptoms. We are in no way saying the things described there are not real. They are. But when we look at who else is describing the same symptoms, we see some of the same exact things, the attention issues, the executive function issues, which is organizational skills and and so forth, putting a plan into action and being able to carry it out. Lorna Wing, who was well-known for autism, defining um, autism in the early, early days of the DSM, says that she called that imagination, and we actually had to look up the technical word. Imagination isn't all about creativity. It's also about the ability to hold a plan in one's head and carry it out. And when we looked at that we saw no difference. And that's what our first book did was just lay down all these similarities. And the more we we delved into it this time, we saw that even at the professional level, there's a a dire amount of of, uh, controversy going on at the professional level. We have a chapter about the validity of ADHD. And it's just not meeting up to even the DSM standards, which is why there's this controversy. But the important thing is 
that those symptoms can be, a lot of them, the behavior that's misunderstood. We look at the behavior as a willful thing when we diagnose it with ADHD, as opposed to in autism, as Temple well describes often, sometimes these kids are having a behavior meltdown because they've got a sensory issue going on, which is often tied to autism. And we need to be really careful that we're not just looking at it in a surface kind of way, which I think has been the problem in the definitions of ADHD. So we have to right. be sure we're understanding underneath. Right. And, you know, also, you know, it, it's it's really jumping the gun because there are so many other things could, that could account for the outbursts. Like you said, there's sensory issues, there's lack of coping skills, the communication, de- you know, deficits. Okay. Um, you know, I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Russell Barkley, who's, you know, renowned ADHD specialist, and he really took me by surprise when he told me that um, much of ADHD is a strength in focusing, not an inability, but that the problem lies within the ability to focus on one thing at a time. That's right. And and Dr. Barkley does make some valid points in that argument where we would probably come across as being um, a little bit radical from Dr. Barkley's thinking is that his recent um, thinking about ADHD, he'd like to see it moved away from an attention uh, disorder, which we could agree with, but he he feels that it's an executive function um, disorder, and that is where we lay down a very strong argument that autism has already asked and answered that question. And so what he's defining is really just sort of reinventing a wheel and one that autism has a much better handle on. And I think part of the reason that's so hard to grasp is because for so long we've had these, as Temple can testify to, we've had these stereotype thinking of uh, ideals. I know I did as a young parent of autism, and we're not seeing, we're not understanding that autism can be giftedness. It can look very much like what we think is just an attention issue, but there's so much more going on, or an executive function issue. So I'd have to say that we've had a we've laid down a pretty strong argument that these issues being defined in ADHD are not exclusive to ADHD, which then sort of unravels the whole theory of separate diagnoses. Well, Dr. Grandin, um, you know, I think what, what, where a lot of the confusion comes in is very early on when a parent is looking for um, an answer um, for their child's behaviors. And it begins with the DSM, the, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for Psychiatric Disorders. It's the most powerful tool in, in the country. Well, but it's I also think, probably the most flawed. <laughs> I think the big problem is is parents get too hung up on the diagnosis. They'll come up to me and they say, well, is my kid autistic? Is my kid PDD? Is my kid got this? My kid's got this. They want this exact verbal diagnosis. And I just say, look, it doesn't really matter. Let's just look at what is the, let's, if you're dealing with a young child, you know, what is his problem? Can he talk? You know, how's, you know, what are the specific problems? Do you have sensory issues? And at least the DMS now is going to be mentioning sensory processing disorder because you can have a child that throws a big fit at the supermarket and it's due to sensory overload. Does the child have a, a, you know executive function? Let's look at what the actual problems are and do something about the problem. Trouble socializing. 
you know, now as far as ADHD and autism is concerned, when you get into ADHD and this, I've, I've talked to a lot of families where they're teenagers so getting a diagnosis from different doctors. One says he has ADHD. The other says he's either Asperger's or high-functioning autism. And guess what? Then sometimes the stimulant medicines work. I mean, that shows right there there's some biological overlap. I read about some genetic research where there's some biological overlap. But then you get down into more classical severe autism, the, AD, the stimulants make it worse. You see there's different, there's different types of, of autism. Um, I think eventually uh, we've got way, way, way too many categories in the DSM, and we get back to you know basic brain systems. There's just not enough brain systems to go along with all those categories. Um, but I think we need to look at what is the thing we have to work on with the kid. Is it social skills? Is it problems with sound sensitivity? Um, you know, does he have problems with his handwriting? I mean, whatever the problem is. But I also want to emphasize build on the strength. When I was a young kid in the third and fourth grade, my mother always encouraged my ability in art, and that ended up being the basis of my um, livestock design business. Build on the area of strength. Build it up. and Take those fixations that these kids get and broaden it out. If the kid's drawing anime all the time, well, why don't we do the anime character's house, do his car, you know, get an associative link back to the, um, back to the fixation. Because the thing is, I'm, I'm in, a, in a technical and creative field, and when I go out to my other meetings and my other places, I'm seeing the grown-up versions of people that are ADHD, people that have mild autism, and they're doing just great. You know, it's sort of like they can go down one path and have a great career and go down another path and it's a mess. And one of the big problems we've got in the autism field is at one end of the spectrum, you've got Steve Jobs, and I'm almost positive he's on the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got somebody like, uh, you know, that's nonverbal, very handicapped, definitely not going to be running a major company. It's such, the autism is such a big spectrum that it's uh, the type of services that one kind of kid needs is very, very different from another kind of kid. And, you know, I think that's where, um, you know, just to back up a little bit, um, a lot of parents get caught on that long road because, as you said, they're looking for that label. And it, it really, you know, I, th I think that people have to start looking at all of these disorders as very multidimensional. Absolutely. That there are very different levels of impairment and to stop looking for comorbidity. Um, you know, I think that, that that would be a good place for, for parents to start, that, you know, each child is going to be different, like you said. Um, you know, with the addition of so many diagnoses uh, proposed. Well, they're just going crazy, uh, crazy on these labels. You better look at, okay, let's say we have a teenager with an anxiety problem, then we do something about the anxiety problem. Or he's got, um, you know, a problem with uh, doing math. You work on that. I mean, what is the specific problem? Um, I think some of this has something to do with language-based thinking because I'm amazed at how hung up they get on the label, whether the kid's PDDNOS, that's going to be eliminated in the DMS-5, or has the kid got autism? And I'm going, look, the treatment's the same. It doesn't matter. You know, let's just let's just work on the problems with the kid. And in the book uh, Bright Not Broken, it really discusses um, you know all these problems with the diagnosis. And the first thing I'm going to say to parents is don't get hung up on the labels. And I say this in my other book, The Way I See It. I have a whole chapter on that. Right. I mean, other than insurance um, coding and for accommodations in an IEP, I mean, labels are for designer clothes. They're not for these kids. It's just exactly. It's, it's not significant. Um, Diane, you know. I wanted to talk to you about, um, you know, what are some of the 
major problems facing these gifted children, um, you know, in different setting, settings because, I mean, it affects their entire lives. It affects the whole family, you know, educationally, you know, we just spoke about, you know, diagnostically, but socially as well. Well, they've got to have the right teachers. And my science teacher really helped me when I was in high school. Um, you know, he, he um, you know, I, in a science class, I was introduced to that optical illusion room. Then I got interested in building that. Um, you got to get kids out. You got to expose them to interesting things. And if I hadn't have had my science teacher, you know, I probably would have uh, gone nowhere. You know, the thing that drives me crazy is one geek gets to go to Hollywood, maybe another one gets to go to Silicon Valley, maybe another one's uh, working uh, working at some other job somewhere good, and then another geek kind of um, ends up on Social Security playing video games, and that's just absolutely horrible. And the thing is, you see, I don't see the label. I'm a visual thinker. I'm seeing the people and. And I see them when they come up to me at the um, at the meetings. One problem I'm seeing today with all kinds of kids is we're not teaching enough basic skills. I mean, I'm appalled at the number of kids that come up to me at the book table and they don't know how to shake hands. They don't know how to greet properly. I was taught those things at a very young age. You know, he's graduated from college and doesn't know how to shop. He's never um, done any job skills. That's totally ridiculous. We need to be starting these things in middle school. I totally agree with Temple, and it, it is one of the things I've seen with my own children and and with um, <clears throat> so many others that, that we've talked to. It's the basic skills, and sometimes these kids are looked at like, well, you're smart enough to know better, but they're not seeing that the autism really could be the social deficit in not knowing. They need to be taught. They need to be shown. And one of the things we suggest is to get into, as Temple says, a peer group with other like-minded um, individuals, people that are going going to see their talent and abilities. My uh, youngest son, discovered in his uh, late teens how much he loved muscle cars and engines. He was all about engines, and he um, was fortunate enough to have one, and he would find himself repairing it as a challenge and a hobby. And now he, uh, several people in his college will come to him and ask him to uh, repair something. And, and so he does it sort of as a hobby but a side job, and he loves every minute of it. It's a challenge. He is excellent at it. But he believed everyone could do that, so he didn't really see it until people started telling him, you know, I can't do that. I can't even take this somewhere and pay someone who can do what you can do. And so that gave him confidence, and in turn his confidence gives him the ability to function better, to make a living for himself, to try and adjust himself. But I have to agree with Temple. I mean, right now at this very moment, some of the toughest things I'm working through with him is keeping his life balanced and functionable on the most simplest of things. Yet he could look at an engine, take it apart, and put it together without a manual. But and what are the about. what what are the things where he's having some problems in his life? Budgeting, budgeting his money or understanding, thinking ahead. That's that executive function. Making a plan and carrying it out. Thinking ahead, well, I need to do this here and this will come up there. It's sort of, he's very linear, sometimes real narrow in his thinking about, um, about things. He's almost too focused on the details. He can't always see the big picture. Well, you know, not all kids acquire skills naturally, and that's what people have to understand that has nothing to do with intelligence, and these kids need to be right. taught basic skills, you know? Right. 
Um, you know, one of the biggest problems that parents face with children with autism, ADHD, really any neurobiological disorder, is education. Um, and I think it's very, very difficult to get educators to see that these kids' focused interests are opportunities and not deficits. So, you know, let's start talking a little bit about education. Um, I know Rebecca's not here, but, um, you know, Diane, if you could speak to that. You know, what are the different settings for these children, and how can a parent help get their child the services and the accommodations that they need? Well, again, you're right. We get um, in school just like in in the psychological realm when we're trying to get a diagnosis for services. The same thing is true in school when we're trying to get services. And unfortunately, all of the educational testing and systems are based and in conjunction with the DSM. So they tend to follow these categories. And with my son, who needed help, he needed a speech pathologist, and not for language. He was highly verbal, but for communication. He didn't know how to tell the teacher he was months behind in learning in math. And and because of that, he felt like he didn't have a math brain. He really did. It wasn't a math deficit. This wasn't a math problem. I ended up for a short time homeschooling him. And in about two months, I walked him through Algebra 1 and 2, which I know is Temple's. Temple thinks we should just take that out for these kids. Yeah. And I, I think he would totally agree with that, and he kept telling me, I can't do this, Mom. He would say, if you want to know what I know about algebra, take a blank piece of paper and duct tape it to my forehead. He's, he's quite a, a comedian about it. But I sat down, and I just kind of pulled it apart and found out. I teased it out. I found the right questions to ask. And in about two months, I walked him through two years of algebra. Now, today he'll tell you he doesn't remember any of it because he hates it. He doesn't want to remember it. But he was able to learn I realized he wasn't able to communicate those things to the teacher. So what parents can do is make sure, take a, a paper, take some of the information from this book or any of Temple's books, of course, and understand your your child communicates different. Help the teacher to see this isn't a behavior problem. This isn't an IQ problem. Given the right communication, the right um mediator sometimes that's what it takes a school psychologist who maybe understands giftedness and high iq kids and kids with uh, uh, communication difficulties find that person get them on the team and understand that when you know the right questions to ask these kids they will thrive and i think um, as temple said you know if they're if science is their passion Find a science club, whether it's in school or out of school. You're going to find the mentors to help those kids, and you're also going to find the other kids who will appreciate the the skills that each other has, and this helps them more socially to fit in, gives them confidence, which allows them to want to try. Otherwise, they tend to feel like failures, and, and, and they, they give up. I think it's very important to get these kids into school clubs where there's shared interests. You know, now, of course, not every uh, kid, I've, I talk a lot about the tech industry, but you've got people on the autism spectrum, they're a word thinker, they're really good with words. Well, some of those are really good at the drama club, being in the, in the theater club, because after all, they've got to learn how to act in the play of society. How about the band club, uh, journalism club, photography clubs, computer clubs? We need to get them in with peers where their shared interests because the places where there were shared interests were the only places where I was not teased. 
everywhere else I was teased. But kids that were interested in horses and model rockets and electronics were not the kids doing the teasing. So get kids involved in these things. Right. And, you know, I think that that's one of the biggest myths of autism is that there are restricted interests and that, you know, all kids and all adults that, you know, are, are on the spectrum, you know, are only interested in science and mathematics. And, you know, that is just so incorrect. No, so no, you're, you're right. Interested. I love what, oh, sorry. Sorry. No, go ahead. I love what Temple said. I was going to just jump in there for uh, Rebecca Temple. Her her son is a gifted gifted writer, just like his mother, very much so. Becky's had a passion for writing since she was nine years old, and sometimes, as Temple's mentioned before, too, we often see those strengths sort of jump out at us when our kids are young. It's what they gravitate towards, and when we help develop them. And Becky's son, who had some difficulty, um, he was in a gifted program early on, but his inability to communicate properly and it looked like behavior as he went through that middle school era and they took him out of the gifted program, which is probably the worst thing they could have done. But to this day, he blogs, he writes, he's as gifted of a writer as she is. And that's a different a different set of intelligences. We describe a little bit about that in the book, um, Howard Gardner describes different intelligences, and as Temple says, there's the creative arts, and sometimes those aren't measured academically, so we have to be careful we're not stereotyping giftedness, too, because all giftedness is not IQ, and as she says, mathematical or technical abilities. No, because you you can have writing, basically, and in my other books, I've talked about the different kinds of thinking. You have the, the photorealistic visual thinker like me, who thinks completely in pictures, uh, and algebra was really difficult for me. Then another kind of thinker is what's uh, the more pattern thinker, you know, what some people call visual spatial, good at geometry, good at making origami, think organic chemistry um, formulas and things like this. It's pattern thinking. These kids are often weak in reading and writing. And then you've got kids that are strictly word thinkers. They're, they do not think in pictures. There's different kinds of minds. And the thing that you have with a lot of kids that are twice exceptional is uneven skills. Good at one thing and bad at something else. We've got to take the area of strength and build on that area of strength. And when these kids get in middle school, we need to start thinking, well, what can he do when he grows up? He needs to start learning some uh, job skills. And I discuss that in you know, another book I have called Developing Talents. Yeah, we're going to be discussing that, actually, later on. I have that down okay. for some questions. You know, I am a fierce advocate for parents to find the courage to stand up to conformity with their school districts and to get their child a differentiated uh, education. I mean, it's just key to their success, and I think that it really holds true even more for children that are less impaired, um, that have the invisible disabilities, because there are a lot of options out there for children. And, um, you know, instead of taking away an art class or a music class um, for a resource class, sometimes it's better to give them an extra class in something that, that they, makes them feel good about themselves. And somewhere where they can really show off their skills. Because, I mean, a lot of people thought I was really stupid. I remember going to an ag engineering meeting, and they didn't even want to talk to me. And then I whipped out one of my drawings. And they go, ooh, you did that? Maybe you aren't so stupid after all. <laughs> you know what, do you, you know, Dr. Grandin, do you feel that, you know, obviously these kids are falling through the, through the cracks. I mean, do you feel the bar is being set too low? You know, if we become a society of, 
indifference, you know, and we're, we're missing out on educating really brilliant minds. Well, I think some people have a very narrow view of education, and one thing people learn reading Bright Not Broken is um, the whole diagnostic mess just leads to it. Finding a lot of educators to get locked into the diagnosis. The other problem is is, it ta- is that there's kind of two very basic kinds of services that are needed. More severe kids need a totally different kind of training than um you know, then and then kids on the other end of the spectrum. Recently, I had a chance to visit a school for um, Asperger and high functioning autism, and there were all the you know some of those were definitely gifted kids, and that, and that had a totally different kind of teaching than a school for kids with more problems. And I think some special educators they just don't know what to do with the gifted kids. Uh, I think having a you know a, like a gifted kid in with a you know bunch of people that are nonverbal that's really bad that's happened in, right. in some school systems but you have really need for different kinds of services and i always ask parents is your child progressing and if your child isn't progressing then you need to get off that horse and and get something else right and you know and i think that that's so true it's very it's very difficult because a lot of schools have um services for children that you know may be struggling academically um, that have differences, but they don't have programs for children that are exceptional that have differences. And Diane, um, in the book you write about the whole child approach. Can you tell us what that is and why it works? Absolutely, and I'm so glad you just brought up that last statement, Mary, and I'm so glad you did because I think that's one of the things we've tried to point out here. I mean, as we've educated our own selves on the giftedness, always knowing that our kids were exceptional. My youngest was diagnosed uh, at the same time he was diagnosed with a misdiagnosis of ADHD. He also was found to, at four and a half, have an IQ in the 150 range. And so I knew that, that, you know, um, he was very, very high uh, academically or intelligence-wise. I knew he had the ability to process. That's what real IQ is, is the ability to process information at a faster rate than than um, than your peers, and I think that um, it's so important that parents understand. I love what you said about the, there's there's a lot for the disabilities. Although we're getting it wrong and we're compartmentalizing so much of it, at least there is help and there is attention. So that's a, a step in the right direction. But with giftedness, the thought is somewhat of, well, they'll sm- they're smart, they'll figure it out. Uh, they don't need our help because they're already above everyone else. And I, I like what you said earlier, too. It is what touches our hearts the most with our own children and with society. These are the children within this group. Not all of them will, um, will do this, but some of those people are the ones who will invent the next engine that doesn't need gasoline. Some, some of these children are the ones who will be our leaders and our visionaries and change our world. And it is just a shame that we don't understand how giftedness needs to be nurtured in the school system, and it, and it isn't. The funding well, I want to mention a, a really interesting article that came out very recently in the New Scientist magazine. It was called Different Minds. And... Uh, you know, some of these different kinds of minds are responsible for a lot of the um, a lot of uh, innovation. You know, after all, the um, people that were really socializing, they weren't the ones that would have made the first stone sphere. That's for sure. Um, you know, this article was called Different Minds, and it was in the New Scientist magazine on November 5th on page 35. And 
and uh, it's written by an archaeologist who's saying that that you know things like autism and ADHD and maybe being a bit more emotional in certain situations really gave advantages. Right, right, and you know. Um, you know, we're also, you know, when we were just going to be discussing the whole child, um, you know, one of the things is that, you know, we have a, I have a new show on my new network, The Inclusive Class, which is just exceptional. And um, they bring on guests every week and talk about creating the inclusive classroom because it's not just about what the children are taught or at the level the children are taught, but it's creating a sensory-friendly um, environment. So what would each of you see as being the type of environment that is best for a gifted child? Well, it's going to depend upon his uh, depend upon the kind of sensory problems he has. I mean, there's some individuals that just can't stand being in a chaotic kind of classroom. There's other individuals where there's a lot of problems with uh, fluorescent lights. They can see fluorescent lights flickering. And I want to emphasize that these sensory problems go across a whole lot of different disorders. You can have them in autism, ADHD. Some dyslexics have them. Others dyslexics don't. All kinds of labels can also have um, these sensory processing. And these uh, problems range from being a nuisance to being very debilitating. Some people have sound sensitivity so bad they can't tolerate a normal restaurant or, or just a classroom. Others, the fluorescent lights are flickering like a disc attack. And sometimes that can be helped by using a colored paper or a pale colored glasses. Right. And, you know, it's funny because I, I interview so many people about so many different um, disorders, and very rarely do you find one that sensory issues are not, you know, part of the disorder. Uh-huh. I mean, it's a huge problem. Something Diane, I'm sorry, you were going to say? I was going to add about the classroom. I know that I know that um, Rebecca could speak to this so much clearer than I can, but I will say what she said before. In her classroom, she teaches um, ninth, tenth, and eleventh graders in a high school, and in a public high school, which is very busy. There's, it's overcrowded. I mean, there's a lot of children, but because she has this understanding, it's easy for her to spot those that maybe are struggling, as Temple said, they've got sensory issues, they're distracted, but also they're not engaged if if they don't understand if it's something that is um, something that's not a good subject for them. If English happens to be one of their weak areas, she can tell that they're tuning out, so what she'll do is get to know that student and zero in on where is their area of interest. She had a student recently that they couldn't put a paragraph together. Of course, they have to be able to write a a complete essay before they graduate. That's one of the requirements. So she helped this student by uh, building the essay around his area of interest. I believe it was airplanes. And so she got him talking about you know, what is it you like about airplanes? And before she was done, you know, he had described an entire story. And then she took that and turned it back around and showed him how to structure that into a writing uh, essay. And he did beautiful. Um, But it it was a matter of finding out where his area of interest was. And that got him excited. And instead of focusing on, I can't write, I can't, my mind's blank, I can't think of anything, because Mm -hmm. the writing frightened him because he, he wasn't good at it. Well, another thing. Could, go ahead, Dr. Grandin. Another thing you might try doing is there's some people that can't write, but that if they, uh, you know, audio tape what they have to say first and then uh, then write it, sometimes that helps. 
you know, I was just going to mention that, that, you know, um, I think it's really important for parents to try to, um, you know, do a little investigating and figure out their ch- child's learning style. I mean, um, one of my daughters is not an auditory learner. If she's sitting in a class and the, and the teacher is lecturing, um, you know, she's taking notes, but it's not really getting through. And the teacher um, said, you know, had asked her what, it, you know, what it was, and she said, "I'm really a visual learner." And the teacher took it upon himself to now do his presentations with slideshows. And, you know, he saw that there were a lot of kids in the class that were visual learners. It could be something as simple as that, that a teacher could do that could make a tremendous difference for a child. I couldn't agree more, Marianne. And and through this whole journey, I've discovered a lot about myself, too, and I think that's important. Sometimes um, as parents, if we have children on the spectrum, we we will eventually discover that there there are some genetic links here, and I, I am not an auditory learner, and I used to repeat back a question. I Actually, I recently had contacted my science teacher. Science was my favorite subject, and he said, you know, you always ask me questions, but they were never questions. They were an explanation, and he said, often, you explained it better than I taught it, and I didn't see it that way. I thought I was asking a question, but it was my way of processing. To just, ver- I had to verbalize it back because I couldn't process it just hearing it. And of course, labs and hands-on kinesthetic things were my absolute favorite. And it was the place where I felt like I fit in because people always wanted to be my lab partner, and I couldn't figure out why because <laughs> I didn't feel popular otherwise. And I, I ran into someone a few years ago who said, we fought over being your lab partner because you always, always had the best projects. I didn't know it. And, and, of course, she did tell me one thing that they were concerned about. I said, well, what was that? She said, well, we never knew whether you were going to show up to class or not. So that that gives you a little insight. of I had some issues on the spectrum myself. Oh, the apples but, don't fall far from the tree, that's for no, sure. No, uh, You but, know, Dr. Grandin, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, I wanted to just, um, you know, we mentioned before that we're going to speak about medications, and I want, I want to talk about that. And then, um, you know, we're going to move on after that and talk about how thinking styles relate to learning styles, which then will relate to the workforce. But let, let's go back to the medications a little bit. Um, you know, medications are often used as a first-line treatment. So often children are prescribed medications for their label or diagnosis um, instead of really focusing on the symptoms. And, you know, I feel that for some children, there's a place for medication. Um, but I, I also believe they're being overused. So how are medication decisions best made? And, um, you know, what are some other options for parents to try? Well, I think, first of all, there's way too many powerful medications being given out to young children. This has gotten especially bad in the last five years since Respiridol got approved for autism. They're getting five-year-olds on Respiridol, which is a powerful antipsychotic, and they're getting the Parkinsonian-like uh, tardive dyskinesia. They're getting huge weight gain. My basic feeling on medications is the younger the child, the more conservative I want to be. Let's try things like more exercise. Let's try things, you know, first like uh, maybe fish oil supplements. The omega-3 supplements, they're getting some good um, some good science. Now, also, kids need to run out the energy. I just wrote an interesting story about a very, very strict school, you know, strict classroom. But at recess, they just let the kids cut loose and run around and scream and run the energy out of them. And, and I find myself I can sleep a lot better when I have exercise. Uh, the other thing I'm concerned about in very young kids is, you know, you give a medication very young – 
could make some permanent changes in the brain. I'd like to try to hold off on medications until, you know, late childhood or teenagers. There are some individuals that definitely need it. I know some individuals where the where a stimulant worked like magic. So a really good rule of thumb is a medication should have a big wow. And if a medication doesn't give you a big wow, then it's not worth the risk. And the younger the right. child is, the more conservative you want to be. Also, you try one thing at a time. Don't change a school or a diet or something else the same time you try a med. If a doctor gives you three prescriptions, well, then ask him which one you should try first. Don't throw three drugs at something all at once. You know, now obviously, if he's got ground mal epilepsy, you might have to do that. But I'm talking about using medications strictly for behavior. Right. And, you know, as, as you know, we've spoken before, start low and go yes. slow. It Stop. is key. And, you know, I, I, we were talking before the interview, and I was saying that many years ago I had heard you um, say that if a child is um, having an exacerbation, that sometimes lowering the dose and, works better than raising it. And which medication were you on? Oh, I don't even remember. That was so long ago. Well, you see, with um, antidepressants, if it's I think an antidepressant. I think it was an antidepressant, yes. Yeah, an antidepressants. So you've also, with, with, there's three classes of medication where oftentimes the effective dose for a lot of people is way below the starter dose on the label. And where you really want to be careful with low doses and keeping them really low is antidepressants. Things like Prozac, you know, um, Lexapro, uh, all the old tricyclics. Because if you get too much of this stuff, you're going to get agitation and insomnia. And if you start to get those kind of symptoms, you've got to reduce the dose, not raise it. The big mistake that's made is raising doses when they should be reduced. And a lot of people on the autism spectrum only need like a half to a quarter of the starter dose. I've been taking a low dose of an old tricyclic for years, and it stopped my constant anxiety and panic attacks. It really saved me. So I'm not anti-drug. I mean, drugs save me. But I'm taking a very low dose of one medication. But it's just ridiculous how every time there's a crisis, they just throw drugs at things. People need to be getting much more logical in how they think. Now, for medication information, I've got it in Thinking in Pictures, 2006 edition, and you can get the one with Claire Danes on the cover or the one with the red dot on the cover. And then the second edition of Thinking of a, of a, the Way I See It. So i got two books of medication, Thinking in Pictures, you know, the more recent edition, and the way I see it has to be the second edition. And I go through all of the stuff on medication. i got references in there. But I'm absolutely shocked at, in some parts of the country, the way they give drugs out to five-year-olds like candy. It's absolutely disgusting. And, you and know, I'd also like to, to compound it, um, I know, uh, Diane, you have sons, but, I mean, if you have a daughter that's having severe anxiety and issues, I mean, it just infuriates me how these girls are not sent for a full endocrine workup before they are prescribed these psychiatric medications because many times they're going to find an underlying organic basis in the endocrine system. And if you give them the Risperdal and the antipsychotics, it, it makes the endocrine situation worse. So, you know, parents really need to do their homework. Well, thyroid problems is another another thing that needs to be looked at. And and um, first of all, Risperdal is a, you know way too heavy duty a drug to be giving out it's your first thing. If you've got a little bit of anxiety, you're a lot better off with a little bit of Prozac or Lexapro, not a, an antipsychotic. I mean, when the antipsychotics should be used is if you have an individual with very severe aggression problems. And I'm not talking about a tantrum in a two-year-old. I'm talking about an older child or adult, especially right. oftentimes one that's a lot more severe. Mm -hmm. That's Diane, true, you were going to say? 
I was going to say, first of all, to answer what you said, Marianne, about the about the underlying issues, uh, hormonally and otherwise, in the thyroid, of course, Temple. Yes, absolutely. Rebecca does have a daughter, and she um, they've they've dealt with this. Actually, they're dealing with it now, and um, I, I couldn't agree more. But also with what Temple is saying with the behavior issues, that's what I was going to add. Um, sadly, and and it is something parents really need to speak out against. The American Academy of Pediatrics just recently, this is brand new, decided to lower the age of of giving these medications to children under the ADHD diagnosis, which is just awful because we've all often said medication, as Temple said, medication is a wonderful tool, but in the hands of misinformation, it's a dangerous tool. And when we're uh, trying to medicate a behavior, a temper tantrum, if you will, maybe that temper tantrum, and when I look at my own son, uh, he would have, he could hold a world record for how long he would have a meltdown. I mean, he'd bang his head on the floor and just keep going. And it, it wasn't always sensory. Sometimes it was, I would watch him get more frustrated and he, he'd use his words less. He had a difficult time trying to tell me what it was that set him off, that made him frustrated. It was communication problem. And so imagine we're giving an antipsychotic to somebody rather than maybe bringing in a speech pathologist who's going to understand this is communication and communication is behavior. And so we don't want to look at it like it's a conduct-disordered behavior, which is where those those real high antipsychotics are too often being used under the ADHD label. Well, the problem yeah, is... I was, is it, yeah, that was terrible. Well, the problem you got is that the, the drug companies tend to push the drugs that are patented. And a lot of the things that work really well, you know, you take some of the old stimulants and the uh, little bit of Prozac or something like that, those are all old drugs that are off patent. So the drug companies aren't that, aren't interested in selling old drugs that are off patent. They want to push the new stuff, and a lot of the new stuff I think is grossly inappropriate and has a much, much worse side effects. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, I, I mean, I was very fortunate. Uh, my daughter became ill very young, um, four years old after a strep infection. But, um, you know, I got very good advice very early, which was if you want a label, I'll throw a few at you. But realistically, there is no way of really knowing what is going to unfold in a child. I mean, and I'm not talking about a child that's nonverbal and obviously autistic. Um, you know, I mean, early intervention is key. But it's the type of intervention that the parent uses that's important. Um, and I think that, you know, what's really underrated is, um, and I'm not saying in any way the parenting is a cause of this, but what I'm saying is that parenting has to be different to children like this, that parents uh-huh. need to be trained in collaborative parenting, in positive parenting. And sometimes, you know, children will rage with these disabilities, but sometimes it can help temper it, you know, which is something else you should try with the young kids. These kids have that's, no breaks. They go from zero to 100, you know. That's right. That's right. And one time I had a parent who wrote to us with our first book and said that she kept telling me how this book had changed her son's life and their family life. And I said, can you tell me? And her husband said, I can sum it up in just one statement. You helped us to understand our son and why he does what he does. And that made all of our approaches different. And I, I think that that is saying um, that, you know, educating yourself about 
why and the the core deficits and and why a child might be having a behavior problem if they have a difficulty communicating and understanding. And when you get the proper help, you'll find out that sometimes it's being a detective and asking those questions. Michelle Garcia Winner is a wonderful, wonderful speech pathologist that has a lot of tools and information uh in her it's called socialthinking.com and she has worksheets for parents of how to be a social detective, how to know what questions to ask, and you will the problem will rise to the top, and you'll see it better. And sometimes it's as simple as that. Right. You know, I always say the eyes are the window of the soul, and, you know, when you look at your child, let them see compassion and understanding, you know, not disappointment, um, because right. that's going to go a really long way. Um, Dr. Crenson, I wanted to um, finish up the interview by asking you a few um, things, because, you know, that really the goal in parenting is to raise a happy and independent child. So, um, as I said before, how do thinking patterns and then relate into learning patterns, how does that then go into the choice of a workforce? Because I think that really parents have to start early. Well, that's right. I mean, in my book, uh, Developing Talents, I talk about the different kinds of minds. People that tend to be the visual thinkers like me tend to go into fields like industrial design. Like, for example, when you design a product like an iPad, for example, the industrial designer, that would be Steve Jobs, the artist, designs a user experience, and then the engineers, which would be the more mathematical mind, has to do the insides. So the visual thinker um, is going to like jobs like industrial design, photography, graphics, animation, uh, handcrafts, all kinds of art jobs, often it's good with uh, animals. And then you have the pattern thinker, the more mathematical mind. That's your programmers, computer programmers. These are your techies, Um, the engineers, actuaries at the insurance company, chemists, uh, these kinds of jobs. And then you have another kind of a word thinker. And this person's definitely not a techie. This is the kid that likes history. That's often their favorite subject. And they're good at jobs. Uh, some of them are very good at retail sales because they can know everything about some specialized type of product, like men's shoes or maybe jewelry. Uh, some of them are journalists. I've been interviewed by journalists that I know are on, you know, are on the spectrum and kind of difficult, uh, kind of different. But there's different kinds of minds, and they're definitely not all technical. Technical is just, is just one type of mind, and we need to be, um, uh, you know, different people think differently. And when people get a label, they tend to have more uneven skills. And again, in the book, bright not broken. Um, you know, all the problems with the labels are discussed. These labels are not precise. They are behavioral profiles. It's not precise like having a diagnosis for tuberculosis. Right, they're very subjective, too. You no, know, it, it, well, it's sort of like profiling hijackers. I mean, that's not that can be somewhat subjective. Right, right. right. Well, you know, I, I think that, that really it's just so important for parents to... Um, you know, to become detectives and to, to learn their learning style and to ensure that the teachers understand them or, most importantly, respect them. But, um, you know, I want to end, end off by asking you, I mean, you know, as one who's traveled this road, I know parents are frightened, they're confused, I, they're exhausted. So, you know, what advice do you have to parents and maybe I think even more importantly to educators on the best way to help a gifted child? Develop the area of strength. Build on that area of strength. 
and also provide opportunities. I mean, one of the reasons why Bill Gates got to be a great programmer is because when he was young, he had access to an absolutely fantastic brand-new mainframe computer terminal. You know, we've got to give kids great opportunities. I saw a program on 60 Minutes last night about a school. They bring in these gifted high school seniors, and they take away all the cell phones and all the Facebook and all that stuff, and these kids are working in real research labs. Well, those are the kinds of experiences that we need to get kids, and this is getting these kids turned on to science. This does happen to be a techie thing, but it's getting the kids turned on to science. You could have similar programs in English literature or in um, uh, journalism or some other thing. Um, We've got to get a lot more thinking about what can it be when he grows up, and there's a lot of famous people that would be diagnosed with a lot of things today. Einstein had no speech until age three. Now, on the other hand, you know, then we, we've got, you know, parents and educators that have faced kids on the other end of the spectrum. And where you really get a mess is when you sort of get get um, the gifted kid gets put in a classroom with kids with a much lower ability and ends up going nowhere. Right. And hands-on is so important. And parents really, I don't know if parents aren't aware of and don't take advantage of them or if they're just, um, you know, um, they feel that it's not a good setting, but there are a lot of schools that offer um, BOCES programs that are very hands-on. And um, these kids get to see what it's like to work in the field. They get to work with the tools, and it can really be life-changing for so many of these kids. Well, you got to expose kids to interesting things. And, um, you know, if you don't get exposed to opportunities, um, I mean, I would have never gone into the cattle business if I hadn't gone into my gone to my aunt's ranch. And originally I was reluctant to go because I was scared Mother said, well, you know, you can go for a week or all summer. Well, I ended up staying all summer, and it was the best thing that ever happened. Well, Diane, One thing what, what, I might add, uh, go ahead, Marianne. Oh, I was going to say you, please. Let, let, I'd like you to answer the same question. Well, I was going to add something in that, that Rebecca has helped helped me to understand, and I've learned about educators myself and, and listening to her speak to them and be one herself, and that is for an educator to understand their own method of creativity and their own method of teaching. Are they an auditory person? Are they visual? Because they're going to gravitate towards that. So if they're not, they need maybe to help balance out so that they can be more well-rounded and reach the children who don't necessarily, they're easily going to gravitate towards, if they're an auditory uh, learner, they're going to gravitate towards those kids who are too. And then they're going to leave behind and not be able to relate to the visual learner or the kinesthetic learner. And so I think it's important for educators to sort of reexamine their own learning style because that's going to help them be in better sync with with the child. And as you mentioned earlier, the whole child model really is about um, bringing out, of course, and it's what we try to do in this book in Bright Not Broken, is it's why the bright is first, because we're saying bring to the to the surface the gift, the strength, the the um the learning style, if you will, that, that you naturally gravitate towards. But at the same time, make sure that you're recognizing the challenges and that you're finding ways to compensate for them with some of these therapies and things that we've talked about, natural things, exercise and and diet sometimes and and sometimes just confidence by using their strengths. I think confidence is a wonderful therapy. Absolutely, and that is a fantastic point that you just made about the teacher's um, teaching style. I mean, you know, I would love to see classes broken down by um, teaching styles rather than academic levels. 
Um, you know, if you have auditory learners, you know, have a teacher that teaches that way. If you have a visual learner, have a teacher that teaches that way. I think that every, all kids would succeed if they were taught the way that they learn, <laughs> you know. That's <laughs> just, right. Yeah, yeah it just seems it would be so much easier. Well, the hands-on well, thank- classes were the things that saved me when I was in high school, things like carpentry and art. Right. Well, you know, the educators have to get our kids. We get our kids. They have to get our kids because these kids are brilliant. Um, These kids are the future. And, um, you know, this book is just incredible. Broken, uh, Bright Not Broken, Gifted Kids, ADHD and Autism, Why Twice Exceptional Children Are Stuck and How to Help Them. You can get it on Amazon. Where else could you get the book, Diane? You can also um, go to our website, and it is... uh, www.brightnotbroken.com and uh, we also will be having as we uh, continue to learn and add to this topic some wonderful resources and and other uh, information and resource but pretty much the book is available everywhere right now Okay, I picked it up at Barnes & Noble yesterday. Um, And also, your website is brightnotbroken.com. It is a fantastic website. And um, Dr. Grandin, always an honor to have you on the show. I appreciate you joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Okay. Diane, I'm sorry Rebecca couldn't make it, but fantastic interview. And as I said, I read a lot of books, and Bright Not Broken is exceptional. It's for exceptional children, and it is an exceptional book. It will help parents tremendously. Thank you both for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Marianne. You're welcome. As we end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent here on The Coffee Clutch. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us.